Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 25th, 2015. bit of a debate within myself as far as which program to do today. Being out of town, it's like, yeah, it's always like getting back in the saddle. This is my get back in the saddle episode, if you would, although yesterday was complicated. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bibles you know, employ sound biblical hermeneutics, exegesis, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, proper distinction of law and gospel to test to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, uh, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles, and eschatology wingnuts to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says or if they're teaching false doctrine, twisting God's word, and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to be teaching. You know, that kind of stuff. So what we're going to be doing today, today is going to be a normal-ish episode of Fighting for the Faith for a Friday afternoon, in that we'll have a good sermon at the end. The, uh, the, fr- the first hour, though, it's going to be, there is no theme, no way possible. Uh, we will finally get to emails starting next week. So if you have an email question you're waiting to have answered, we will start getting to those next week. I'm slotting in some extra email segments throughout the week to kind of start to catch up. But uh, this episode, ooh, um, no, no theme. It's going to be all over the map. And I think it's probably best... If I not tell you what's coming, uh, with, with with one exception, yeah, and here's the uh, the one exception. Toward the end of this hour, we're going to be playing an extended uh, a portion of the Jim Baker program. I don't know if you are aware of this. I may have mentioned this, but um, the prophecy wingnuts, the eschatological doomsday sayers who are making a load of money selling prepper supplies to people by whipping them up into a anxious fear of the uh, you know the coming doom gloom judgment kind of thing uh kind of bill tapley on steroids uh they are you know they were saying no joke that uh with the um the firing up of the cern hadron collider which has now come and gone yeah that was during this week and they're they're done with their experiments now um that uh, the folks at cern were supposedly going to open up a portal 
And, you know, and this supposedly is found in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the demonic, you know, demons and the devil himself were going to come pouring out of this portal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the problem is that's not what Scripture teaches. So we will be getting to that. And um, like I said, I'm going for the uh, the eschatological triple crown this year. And uh, I really want to put this on my resume. You know, that, uh, you know, a pastor at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oshlo, Minnesota, uh, host of uh, Fighting for the Faith, captain of Pirate Christian Radio, and winner of the 2015 Eschatological Triple Crown. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're thinking, what is that? Well, see, I, I'm, the, I'm the guy who bet against the Shemitah, and, well, nothing happened. A little 29 came and went, and God did not wipe out the uh, U.S. economy, so they're claiming the Super Shemitah. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Super Shemitah. Oh, sorry. I forgot about Super Shemitah. Yeah, but, yeah, but I've already debunked that one. So uh, they were saying that uh, the demonic world was going to come pouring through the, you know, whatever, you know, the CERN Hadron Collider. That didn't happen. And, um, and of course, now we got the uh, fourth blood moon coming up on the 27th and 28th. And you know what? You want to know what's going to happen uh, with the the fourth blood moon? Nothing is going to happen. So that's my that's my bet. So you know, I, in in fact, I'm thinking with all of the things that are coming together. You know, it's not just the triple crown. I mean, now you've got the uh, like I said, the Herald Campingites claiming the you know the end of Judgment Day because it apparently began with uh, Harold Camping's failed prediction for the rapture. Uh, that's when Judgment Day began, um, but uh, they're claiming that you know October seventh, you know, could it could be the uh, the the end, the last day of Judgment Day. Uh huh. So I'm, I mean, it's not just a cri- triple cr- crown that I'm going for. I mean, the eschatological triple crown for 2015. But I'm going to be, I, I guess, I'm going for the eschatological quadruple crown. And, and the way I look at it is, is I mean, the, all of the, um, I've got everything on my side. It literally everything so far uh, in the history of uh, you know of Christianity, every single person who has predicted things to happen with eschatological significance, um, they've with one hundred percent accuracy all flopped. So I mean this, I mean winning the eschatological triple crown or quadruple crown, depending on how you're counting this year. Um, yeah, easiest thing I've ever done, but I do want this on my resume. I'm I'm thinking I'm going to I'm definitely going to put that on my resume. Winner of the eschatological uh quadruple triple crown. Yeah, I think that might be the right way to put it, you know, along with, you know, the destiny uh, you know, uh, purpose destiny thingies. But anyway, um you know, what, so that's what we're going I'm not going to prepare you in any other way except for to say you might want to be seated. Uh, because we're going to be all over the map this first hour. In fact, it'll probably run a little bit long, but uh, that doesn't matter. So I'm going to actually play our standard warning, and then we're going to get right to it. Here we go. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. 
Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You have been warned. Now imagine if you were to show up to church, you know, like Kensington Church in uh, Troy, Michigan, and the praise and worship band began the worship service with this song. Here we go. Good morning, Kensington. Go ahead and stand up. You're going to have him stand up for this. I, I recognize this tune. I grew up in the era when it was released. I know you know this one. Whoa, whoa. Well, my friends, the time has come. Raise the roof and have some fun. Throw away the work to be done. Let the music play, oh, play, oh, play. Everybody sing, everybody dance. Lose yourself in wild romance. We're going to party, carabo, fiesta, forever. Come on and sing along. All right, sing it if you know it. Exactly is the function of this song in the um, worship experience, um, and you have to call it that nowadays. I mean, I, I don't. It's not a church service. It's it's a worship experience, and this is in the experience room, you know, because that's what they're no longer sanctuaries. It's their experience rooms. I, I'm a, I'm a little befuddled. I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. And now we're going to listen to another segment from Kensington Church. Pertaining to their punk ska band. Yes, you heard that correctly. I'll let one of the members of Kensington explain what their first church experience was like when they visited this seeker-driven church. Here we go. My name is Dennis Hines, and the uh, first time I came to Kensington was in August of 1997. Kathy and I walked into Troy High School, and... uh, as we looked around, we thought we probably were the oldest people there. Uh, so we found our seats, and, and it was pretty crowded at the 1030 service, I think. Uh, then to begin the service, uh, this band came out. Uh, I think they call it a ska band. Uh, ska band. Uh-oh. I'm Joe Yerke. I'm the lead vocalist for the uh, Insiders uh, punk ska band from uh, Detroit. When they... Uh-huh playing i looked over kathy and said i'm not sure we should be here it was very loud and certainly not my kind of music our performances were uh i would like to say on the on the harder side we considered ourselves uh what we call a ska core so it was uh we had elements of hardcore we like to to do high energy a lot of jumping a lot of uh 
screaming, uh, uh, the occasional spit flying out of my mouth into the person on the front row, things like that. Blessing and honor, glory and power, be it to the ancients of days. Are you channeling Zool? What is that? I'm Afronation, all of creation, bow before the ancients of days. We must have been sitting pretty close to one of the speakers because it was, it was extremely loud. Uh, and I thought this might be the regular type of music that was played at Kensington, so I wasn't too enthusiastic about it at that point. Whenever you're playing, you can look and you can see the, the faces of people, and some people are like, I, I don't think this is, uh, you know, what I'm used to on a Sunday morning. They didn't. Yeah, I don't think that's, um, well, how we would we put this? I don't think that song is done in a way that encourages congregational singing. Yeah, I, I think congregational singing is kind of out of the question with your punk ska band. Take it to come. They they came to hear uh, the pastor bring the thunder, but um, they got us. <laughs> Your kingdom shall reign over all the earth. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it. Um, I prefer this ditty by uh, Kensington more than the ska band. Yeah, I see. I think that does encourage uh, congregational singing. Um, you know, people clearly were singing along to that, but they weren't actually singing about Christ or anything that Scripture actually says, and that would not be worship unless, of course, you're worshiping an all night long party. I think you get what I'm saying. Moving along. Yeah, time for a William Tapley update. You know, the Pope's in town. Coming soon, listen to Third Eagle's tune. Doom and gloom, God is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon, you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom, very soon, rapture comes at night or noon. Very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. That's right, doom and gloom coming soon with the uh, Pope in town. You didn't think we were going to pass up on an opportunity to let uh, William Tapley explain to us the prophetic significance of the Pope's visit now, would you? Anyway, without any further ado, here is William Tapley to give us his take on... um, Pope Francis's uh, speech before Congress. Here we go. Revelation unraveled. I am your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. This morning, September the 24th, 2015, Pope Francis addressed the United States Congress. And I believe he is the... Yeah, and I watched it, and um, it was, man, um, I was not thrilled with it at all. Um, 
Yeah, I find it fascinating that a um, churchman is being treated as if he's a head of state. And uh, he went and talked about politics and public policy and things like, you know, like global warming and stuff like that. Yeah, not normally what you would expect from a churchman now. Well, then again, uh, they do kind of mix church and state there in the uh, Vatican. But we continue. Hope to address Congress. And I really was not surprised at anything he said because, as you know, I believe he is the false prophet of these end times. Yeah, you're kind of missing eschatologically the significance of uh, the office that he holds. Uh, Read the Lutheran Confessions on this, small called articles in particular, or even the power and primacy of the Pope. You'll kind of get the point there. His speech basically could have been written by Barack Obama's speechwriters. I tend to agree with you there. Everything he promoted came right out of the liberal agenda. For example, he supported more immigration. He supported more welfare programs. I thought he would speak out against abortion, but really he fumbled the ball on that one. Indeed he did. He did come out and say we should respect all human life. But then he went on a long rant against the death penalty. Well, Pope Francis, (laughs) did you ever do your research? How many convicted criminals are executed in America every day? compared to the 3,000 babies which are aborted. Those aborted babies, they have no trial, no jury, no judge, no stay of execution. They suffer the death penalty, and they are innocent. Yeah, good point there, William, I agree. And Pope Francis, you didn't even use the word abortion in your entire speech. Why didn't you address the issue currently in front of Congress? The defunding of Planned Parenthood. They not only slice and dice babies, but they sell the parts of aborted babies. They are a wicked and barbaric organization. Couldn't you say one word against that terrible evil which is afflicting America? But the real verification, to me anyway, that Pope Francis is the false prophet was the 666 hand signal. Uh, what? I mean, you were giving such lucid commentary there. And, um, he did what? Gave to Congress. And I am sure there were a lot of Masons in the audience who understood exactly what he was doing. What was he doing? Gave the OK sign. Okay. So he gave the okay sign. What's wrong with that? And that is not only sexual, but it is satanic. Um, (laughs) wow, I had no, I've for years have used this okay sign, you know, a okay, you know, um, had no idea that it was sexual or satanic. Please do tell. Well, you have the feminine form and you have the three Forms which indicate masculinity. Uh-huh. Right. It is also 666. One six, two six, three sixes. So if you make the OK sign, you'll notice that you make a circle with your thumb and your index finger. And then, you know, if you look at it from the side, you know, 
Um, you can see the number six. And so your middle finger and then your ring finger and your pinky all make these the three sixes. So who knew? I mean, the mark of the beast right there by Pope Francis when he made the Ote sign. <laughs> oh, really? Six, six. What's really interesting is Pope Francis gave this okay sign three times. Once low, then high, yeah. and then low again. I totally missed all of that. Man, here I watched the entire thing and I didn't even notice the high, low, and mid-666 symbols by the uh, Antichrist. Three times, yeah. And on that high one, yeah, he used the word God. He spoke about God very briefly in this entire speech, but when he did, he used the OK sign. Mm-hmm. This is an amazing demonstration of his true allegiance to the satanic God of the end times, and that is the Antichrist. Uh huh. Look at this amazing clip. I'm... On the other, the Pharaoh Moses leads us directly to God. There, there it is. It's the OK sign. Apparently it means 666. Who knew? And thus, to the transcendent dignity of the human being. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that, wow, that just proves it right there, you know. Not sure what it proves, but it proves it, you know. Yeah, I, I think you kind of get the point. Um William Tapley, definitely still a taco short of a combo plate. And um, the uh, eschatological significance of the news stories that he's covering, there is no eschatological significance to any of that. So um, saying that the Pope is the uh, false prophet because during his speech to Congress, he gave the okay sign. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. Moving along. We're all over the map today. You're just going to have to hang on. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Roll a bell, a ball. Roll a bowl a ball, sing and roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that can mean only one thing. Time for a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. And uh, we're going to be listening to Rob Hodgkins of the Patricia King Gang as he tries to explain to us uh, a teaching that he's actually, uh, we've heard him touch on this before. But apparently, did you know that there's a such thing as the birthing anointing? Yeah, the birthing anointing. Uh, you're thinking, I had no idea there was a such thing as a birthing anointing. I understand that. But, I mean, you see, you have to learn how to read the Bible through the lens of um, of irrationality and, and uh, being moved by the Spirit in order to you know basically read yourself into the biblical texts. 
And uh, and then you can come up with this thing called the birthing anointing. Here's uh, Rob Hodgkins from the Patricia King Gang to explain. Here we go. Callings, mantles, ministries, abundance, provision, favor, miracles. You are pregnant with all of it. And in this season... I'm pregnant with all of that, really. I didn't even know I had a womb. Great grace in God, with God, and for God to see all of those blessings, all of those promises, all of those prophetic words that have been spoken over you brought forth. What we uh, what prophetic words have been spoken over me exactly? I'm not even sure I know what you're talking about. I can't think of any, in fact. What you do in this season is grab hold of the birthing anointing. That yeah, grab hold of that birthing anointing, right. God is releasing in great abundance in this hour to help each and every one of us birth the fullness of the blessings and promises, the totality of those prophetic words that have been spoken over our lives, to see them come forth in greater and greater measure and manifestation in this season than ever before. Now, what I want to talk with you about today is exactly that, the birthing anointing. Mm -hmm. And where do you find this birthing anointing in Scripture? Please explain. I want to remind you that the birthing anointing in the spirit really works very similar to the birthing anointing in the natural. It all- uh-huh. Really? So the birthing anointing in the spirit works like the birthing anointing in the natural? I, I, I'm not even familiar with the natural birthing anointing, yet alone the spiritual version of it. What are you talking about? begins with unity and intimacy. Uh-huh. Now, the best example we have, I think... Okay, so that statement just utterly creeped me out. So the natural begins with unity and intimacy. The birthing anointing in the spirit begins with unity and intimacy. And that should give everybody the heebie-jeebies. Okay, yeah, um, listen, that kind of unity, yeah, I'm, no, uh-huh, yeah. I'm, I've got a problem here. The birthing anointing in all of Scripture is in the New Testament in Luke 1. When Mary, when, when, when Mary gets the word of the, uh, the, the Lord through the angel Gabriel, he comes and says, you are going to birth Emmanuel. This is something that, of course, happens in the natural, but it also has great impact in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are familiar with the fact that the Virgin Mary, uh, she conceived and bore Jesus without the assistance or the unity with a man kind of thing. And the kind of the important thing there about the virgin giving birth is she gave birth to God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, come to save us. It's kind of like an important part of the story of our salvation and what God has done to save us. It points us to Jesus, not to some so-called spiritual birthing anointing thingy that we're all supposed to have. Because if we were supposed to have a birthing anointing, don't you think the Bible would actually say, and thus says the Lord, um, all of you are going to have a spiritual birthing anointing. It's a lot like the natural, and here's how it works. So don't you think God would actually teach on this plainly and clearly? Just pointing to the virgin birth does not tell me anything about some spiritual birthing anointing that I'm supposed to have. Again, I'm a dude, don't even have a womb. Can learn so much from Mary's responses and how Mary walked through the word of the Lord and the bringing forth the complete and total birthing and manifestation of the fullness of that word coming forth. It all begins with unity and with intimacy. And I want to read you a couple. Uh, yeah, again, you say that twice now, and it's like I'm starting to get like creepy crawly skin thingies going on here. Scriptures out of Luke 1. First, out of Luke 1 28, it says. 
Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. One, one translation says, Greetings, highly favored of the Lord. The Lord is with you. And the, the, the word I want to focus on in that sentence, in that scripture, is the shortest of them all. It's is. It says, The Lord is with you. That was the promise of the angel Gabriel. That was the promise of the Lord through the angel to Mary. I am with you. And um, yeah, it wasn't a promise. That was a statement of fact. I want you to know the very same thing. God is with you. You are one with the Lord. If you have said yes to Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and Savior, then you are one with God. It's all about restored relationship through the... Uh, uh yeah, see, um, hmm. I have been united with Christ. I've been buried with Christ, raised with Christ in the waters of my baptism, um, but the way you're talking here, I am one with the Lord. That is not what the angel Gabriel said that when he said the Lord is with you. For instance, with, if I am with my wife, you know, let's say the two of us are having dinner. I am with her and we're communicating, um, here. That's not to say that we are one. You, you, you see, you're, you're playing a, a word game here. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's really awful and it's creeping me out regarding its implications. Work of the cross. In John 17, 22, Jesus even says the very same glory, Father, that you've given to me, I'm giving to them so that they may be, may be one with you just as you and I were one. So you have unity and I want to encourage you, take time to acknowledge that. Yeah, the problem is you keep talking about unity in the context of a so-called birthing anointing. That somehow unity, uh, intimacy equals birthing. You see what I'm saying here? Yeah, and see, by the way, this is one of the major traits within all forms of mysticism. Which, by the way, uh, you know, this new apostolic uh, reformation type of charismania here, um, this, that's a form of mysticism. And one of the things that's common to all mystics is they're basically describing and talking about unity with God in erotic terms um, or hinting at it in an erotic way. Uh, You know, you think of Anne Voskamp. She, you know, she does this in spades in her, you know, thousand whatever book that she wrote. Um, Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a mess. It is an absolute mess. Yeah. It's to mix. It's to take the metaphor and turn it into the real thing, and that's the problem. We continue. Embrace that unity. To to experience that unity, and don't go by your feelings. Go by faith, because I can even hear some of you saying, "Oh, I know that's the word, but it so often doesn't feel like God is with me." But I want you to know, the righteous don't live by their feelings; they live by their faith. Don't let your feelings talk you out of the truth of the Word of God, which is the very fact that God is with you yeah god is with us i'm indwelt by the holy spirit for sure but again you're not giving me any accurate way of of understanding what the scripture reveals here Embrace that unity. Spend time. Embrace the intimacy of that unity. And, and as re- in regards to intimacy, the other scripture I want to give you is Luke one thirty five, where it says... Yeah, so notice Luke one twenty eight, Luke one we We're just cherry-picking verses here. 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, see, as we embrace the truth that God is with us, as we acknowledge that, as we spend time with Him, as we make time with Him, just like in the natural, husbands and wives, we need to make time for each other so that we can have, we can embrace unity. We are one in the Spirit. We are made one through the, the covenant of marriage. But we've got to make time for that. We've got to make time for the unity. We've got to make time for the intimacy. We've got to allow the, the time for that. Well, it's the same with God. And I want to tell you, as you do, you're, you're not only activating the unity and the intimacy, but you're activating the birthing anointing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Again, you just draw a, you know, some dots here and, you know, how you, you know, intimacy, unity, birthing. Yeah, no, that's not what scripture is teaching regarding our intimacy with God. Wow, that's uh, really bad. And you'll notice that, uh, again, I noted the fact, and I'm going to now go back and clean this up, that uh, Rob Hodgkins here in uh, quoting Luke, that uh, he did something, well, he was pulling a fast one is the best way to put it, is that uh, he said, you know, talking about how the... uh, the the spirit of the Lord will overshadow you. That's not a promise to you or to me. No, 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 no. That's talking about something very specific pertaining to how the Virgin Mary conceived uh, Jesus Christ. So let's take a look now um, at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Here's what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. Now notice, this is all about Jesus. This is not about something that you and I are supposed to experience at all. Verse 34, So Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Legit question, right? So the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So there's the quote right there. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is referencing how she's going to conceive because she hasn't been with a dude, right? Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So when it talks about the Spirit overshadowing Mary... It nowhere does it say in Scripture that 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 is a description of what God the Holy Spirit's going to do to you or to I. Uh, what Rob Hodgkins is doing here, like I said, is really, really, really creeping me out. But uh, we'll have to pause there. And uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we will uh, finally get to the uh, CERN episode, you know, portion of the program. We're talking about apparently demon portals being opened up. Well, it didn't happen. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You can Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it, all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. Oh, you put your left foot in, put your left foot out. You put your left foot in. Put your left foot out, put your left foot in, put your left foot out, put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, you take your First with the arms, uh, nothing, nothing real effect. But then as soon as I just start, we start doing the whole, we'll put your left foot in, your right foot in. Both of my knees, you know, one at a time, I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain. I said, and you said, start checking yourself. I just squat down. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord, for new knees. In Jesus' name. Come on. 
Come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple of, about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore uh, up until today. And when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, demons will not be emerging from a portal in CERN. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to 
Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. That's right, folks. Uh, we are approaching, oh man, I hope, the end of the Shemitah, Super Shemitah, CERN, d- Demonic Portal, Four Blood Moons, End of the Judgment Day Trifecta, quadrecta, Quadrifecta, I don't know what to call this thing. But, uh, yeah, yeah, all those people out there saying that, you know, September, October would be the months that we would really remember, you know, you know that, uh, that those would be the months when everything changed. And, you know, and oh, we'd probably have to start dipping into our, three, you know, seven-year supply of food that we bought from Jim Baker. Yeah, it, it's eh, not panning out that way now, is it? And uh, what we're going to be listening to, we're going to go back in time just a little bit, although we will not be making use of the uh, Fighting for the Faith um, uh, DeLorean time machine for this. And what we're going to be listening to is a portion of a uh, program from the Jim Baker show, and this was back in, well, um, April of this year. Yeah, April of this year. And uh, Tom Horn was on, and uh, and uh, John Shorey was on with Jim Baker. And they were all oh, just talking about how, you know, CERN, you know, the, the, you know, the folks with the Hadron Collider. Yeah, that uh, when they fired that thing up in September, you know, they were going to be, you know, trying to create a portal, you know, in, you know, into another dimension and there would be things coming out of it, you know, kind of stuff. And then tying it with the book of Revelation chapter nine. And, uh, well, the, uh, experiments, uh, for September that were slated to occur, uh, at the uh, CERN Hadron Collider have, uh, come and gone and no, n- no one has spotted Beelzebub, uh, the whore of Babylon, or the uh, the beast or the antichrist emerging from a portal at CERN. And so we're going to actually listen to what it is that they were saying to people because this is another one of those things, uh, as I was on social media over the past uh, week, uh, noted all the people who were really concerned about all of this, uh, Christians who were just con- you know absolutely convinced that you know the devil was going to come popping out of a portal in CERN, and uh, and it didn't happen. And we're going to kind of do a little bit of a postmortem to kind of take a look at why that is. And of course, if you follow me on social media, then you know we uh, we had a little bit of fun with it. Uh, we had a cataclysmic, apocalyptic, uh, fo- uh, photoshopped photo of uh, 
the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and uh, you know a portal at CERN, you know, <clears throat> when on the day when they fired that thing up. But uh, here's um, the uh, Jim Baker show, a host of people, uh, Tom Horn, yeah. <laughs> Jim Baker, you know, it's just it's unbelievable what we're about to hear. Here we go. It's something, it's called CERN. It makes me very concerned. Mm-hmm. C-E-R-N. The Yeah, you may be concerned, but the problem is you don't have any discernment. Uh, Hadron, I think it's pronounced. Hadron Collider. Okay. Do you want to tell the people what it is? I have pictures. There's one. There it is on the screen. Yeah. This is the biggest machine in the world. How many until today did not know about this? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Come on. That's a, almost 100%. 99% of this audience never heard of this. This is the biggest machine ever made in the world in history. I believe it's 17 miles long. It's in France and Switzerland. If you see a map, it's the, the map, it's a circle. Yeah. It would be almost five miles across. And the reason they buried it under the ground is because they might have an oops. And, you know, back, uh, uh-huh. back yeah. when we were testing nuclear warheads, we'd take them deep down underneath the earth yes. because yeah. you wouldn't want to blow one of these up on the surface of the earth, right? Right. right. I'm curious how they got permission to dig that many miles under France and under Switzerland. And uh, th- this is what the, the headline, I, I don't know if it's, it's just this week, I think. This is the headline. S- Stephen Hawking, he called uh, the God particle could destroy the universe. He keeps warning. He's supposed to be one of the most brilliant minds in, ever in history. And he keeps warning that this, he calls it God particles. Do you understand this at all? Well, the Higgs, I don't. The Higgs boson is traditionally called the God particle, and they part of what they want to do with the collider, it's not the only thing they're doing there, is they want to see if they can discover the Higgs boson or the God particle. Essentially, we Christians would say they're looking for how God holds everything together. That's why they call it the God particle. Well, I Some read where it's what you're made up of. And what all matter, I guess, is well, made well, up that's of. that's exactly right. It's what we're made up of. It's also what's holding us together. They're trying to find Jesus, but they don't want to find Jesus. So they're trying yeah. to find what it yeah. what is it that holds all matter together. That's one of the things they're looking for. Uh, the the what the what CERN does that big circle. It accelerates particles in that big circle around and around and around and around until they're traveling at just enormous velocity. Mm-hmm. And then they collide these particles together. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it creates a moment that they think is kind of how the Big Bang started the whole universe. That's mm-hmm. the whole purpose behind it. However, they also believe that there are parallel realities around us, other dimensions, and there could be other intelligence there. Another thing we Christians already know, right? Why not just come and ask us? You don't need to build a collider. However, there's a reason God put them on the other side of that veil, and you might not want to open the door. And, and, And here's the thing. Yeah, so apparently the Sernhadron Collider is supposed to open a door in you know to which will open it to demons yeah they're conducting a science experiment this is not an episode of ghost hunters 
Okay. Their own their own director of CERN has gave uh, uh, interviews to the British press in which he admits that's what they're trying to do. They want to open a door to another dimension. And uh-huh. he said when we open this door, he said something might come through it into our reality. Or he said we might send something through it into their reality. You can look that up. It's in the British press where the CERN was built. This is St. Genus Poeli. That's the name of the township. But in ancient days, guess what it was called? It was called Apollyakam. It was literally a temple to the god Apollo because they believed that's the gateway to the underworld. Uh-huh. There, went, I saw a goddess. I, and Apollo uh, doesn't exist. And uh, regardless of what the ancients thought of that particular town, you know, gateway to the underworld or whatever, uh, it has no relation whatsoever to the Hadron Collider. I was looking at all these pictures. That's her. Shiva. Actually, they built, uh, the, the, they have the, the god, the Hindu god of destruction that destroys at the molecular level is right out in front of the offices of CERN, and it's That's, dedicated it's like to Shiva. Uh, really, the Hindu god destroys down at the molecular level. Uh, where's that in the uh, Hindu myth regarding um, Shiva, the god who destroys down to the molecular level? Um, I'm sure the Bhagavad Gita doesn't discuss molecular um, biology or molecular physics or anything like that. On the screen, you show it because so I've crazy. seen it, and I said, "This is a false god." What in? The, I didn't. I, I couldn't find anything about it because I I need to get some books and read a little right. bit more. And, and but you go online and type in. Uh, the Hadron, or you can actually type in uh, CERN. CERN comes up with all of it as well. And all the pictures, it's the most beautiful. I mean, it's like Satan. It's the most beautiful thing. I mean, for a guy. Yeah, that Hadron Collider, it, it's just the most beautiful. It's just like the devil, huh? The biggest tinker toys in the <laughs> world. I mean, it's beyond the blues, the reds, the colors in this thing. And yet, it's it's there's a goddess... At the offices, at the where they go to work, there that build this thing. Yeah, just because they have an idol of uh, Shiva there on the property does not mean that they're going to successfully open a portal into the nether regions. Oh man, it was not important for us to know. It's time for the church to stop glorifying ignorance. <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And this would be a prime example of the thing that you're warning people about, ignorance. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, serious. That's good. That's he said, I don't want that day to come upon you unaware. Yeah. Tom, help me out. <laughs> you have a brilliant mind. Oh, my goodness. You have an inquiring mind, I'll tell you that. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of like you. I have a dangerous mind. Yes. Right? yes. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about ourselves now and pat ourselves on the back. And Yeah, boy, yeah, the egos are swelling there. Um, yet uh, nothing happened. Yeah, um, that uh, that uh, CERN Hadron Collider has been fired up a couple of times this year. And, uh, yep, Beelzebub hasn't popped through, you know. Trouble all the time. Yeah. 
Do you want to say anything else about that? Because well, I got just, one last yeah. question. Yeah. Then we're going okay. To the just, just that that's it, that it's named after Apollyakon, the gateway to the God Apollo. But what does the book of Revelation say? Yeah, absolutely, that an angel comes down with a key to the bottomless pit and opens. Yeah, Revelation 20 there, yeah. That gateway. And guess who is the God down in there? The king over the bottomless pit. Apollyon. Abaddon. The king of the bottomless pit. Apollyon is uh, Revelation 9-11. Oh, man. So there you go. I mean, you know, because the, the CERN facility is built in the same place where there was an ancient city named Apollycom, you know, and... And you know, you know, when you look at Revelation nine eleven, you know, Abaddon, Apollyon, yeah, and then Revelation twenty talking about you know, the 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 keys to the pit. You know, who knew that the keys to the pit were a seventeen mile long hadron collider? Yeah, yeah. See, the problem is that's not what Revelation is referring to. Revelation actually nowhere mentions or even alludes to CERN. And we're trying right there to open Boy, a gateway that is, yeah. Let the front row lady yeah. tell us. I'll get her to make some notes for me. I'll use them next wow. time. Incredible. Yeah. This, so, this is shocking. Jim, can and, I say one comment here? And I knew, just John, because you, you know what's going on. Well, Go ahead. you know. Yeah, here comes John Shorey to uh, prophetically chime in and, you know, jump in, you know, so he can get his two cents in. I mean, I mean. Yeah, you know, that CERN thing. Whew. Yeah, you know, Zool will come right out of the refrigerator on that. We was talking back there. I said, you know, it sounds to me like you're describing they're trying to open the door, the, to the gate to hell. Right. Okay. Well, here's, here's the yeah. thought. Uh, God literally sealed and locked demons into the earth that would not be released until the last days. Mm -hmm. And now we have evidence that man is the one that's trying to open the door. And yeah, which is weird because uh, Revelation 20 verse 3 says they won't be released until the end of the thousand years. And this is a guy who is a um, premillennialist. Weird. I mean, they're not even consistent there. Uh, some, right. Right. It's really crazy. It's right there, Revelation. 9, you, you know, right? if if, if I was is. a teenager, I would oh. really be excited oh. about that <laughs> because they. Oh, I'm sure you're really excited about all this stuff because you're using this CERN uh, fear, uh, you know, mongering that you're in, engaging in here to sell products so that people will buy your prepper supplies. Supernatural. They love all of the the the, the drama. <laughs> Sasha's over here going crazy. I, really I mean, am. she's Honestly, like this. I'm listening. And here comes uh, the most uninformed yet comment that we've heard, and we'll end with this one. Conversation, and I'm taking notes. Like my format is completely full. But as you're talking, as you're talking about the bottomless pit, I'm looking. I'm like, wait, we just learned this yesterday. I'm flipping to Revelation nine, reading along with what you're teaching. You're not even teaching from the Bible per se, but you're just teaching what they're doing. And I'm reading it out of my Bible, literally. This is what we talk about every day on the show when we say we're living in the Revelation times. And when you can open your Bible, read the news, and they go parallel together, these are the times we're living in. Yeah, and that's the problem is that um, when I open up my Bible and then open up the newspaper and read about the Hadron Collider out there in CERN, there is no parallel at all.
The uh, folks there at CERN were able to fire up that Hadron Collider and Zool and the Gatekeeper and the Keymaster. None of them showed up, like at all. And the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man never made a single appearance at CERN this week. So, um, yeah, you kind of get the idea something's wrong here. And I would say this. Yeah, I think there is a parallel for sure. You know, as I'm listening to the folks over at Jim Baker's show fleecing people in the name of God and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, engaging in end times eschatological fear-mongering in order to sell um, prepper supplies. Yeah, I, I do see a, a, a parallel to that, though, in uh, Scripture. Second, those, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Start at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion, the apostasy, that's what it says, the apostasy comes first. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed uh, and the son of destruction, the who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I mean, I read that part about the coming apostasy, and I just have to wonder, is that what we're looking at here? Are these the symptoms of that great apostasy and rebellion against God? And are these types of reports where people are believing in the Shemitah, the believing that CERN's going to open up a portal and demons are going to come out of it, Believing in the four blood moons. I mean, are, is, are these signs of the uh, strong delusion that God sends on people in the last days? Sure to sound like it to me because none of this stuff is panning out at all. And, the, you know, but of course, the people who are selling this stuff and, you know, and making these claims, they sure are making a lot of money, you know, engaging in eschatological fear mongering for fun and for profit, P R O F I T. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Alistair Begg. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... 
are listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Let's do this right. Fighting for the Faith, we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Truth for Life uh, Ministries website. Uh, this is the home of the uh, teaching ministry of Alistair Begg. The name of the sermon that we will be listening to is entitled God of the Exiles, and it is based upon Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. This is a good sermon in light of just the increasing darkness within our own culture 
And uh, what do we do when we find ourselves in a situation where what we believe is at odds with the culture or the, you know, the place where we find ourselves in exile? I think it's a fantastic sermon. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. Without any further ado, here is Alistair Begg and the God of the Exiles. Here we go. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Then let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king." And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, let's pray together. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. 
and make the book live to me. For Jesus' sake, amen. For the first time since I've lived here on these fair shores, I sense that the wind has changed. Changed in a number of ways. The prevailing wind is certainly not at the back of the sails of professing Christians. Indeed, the wind appears to be a pretty stiff wind that blows the forces of secularism directly at those who declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. I wouldn't want to overstate that. I'm not an analyst of secular culture. I have no peculiar insight any more than anyone else. But as I travel a little bit within the country, I've discovered that the old days of the bravado of the moral majority, of Jerry Falwell, and all that was going to be achieved as a result of those endeavors, uh, they're no longer a strong cry. Uh, In fact, they're barely a whimper. And many individuals appear to be completely overwhelmed by the reality of the circumstances of the church, because we're pushed back. The trips across the Atlantic Ocean that used to be marked simply by uh, the enthusiasm of the tourist um, now are returning to me somewhat differently. People coming back and saying, I think we're beginning to understand why it is that those large cathedrals of Western Europe are pretty well empty. Before, they used to come back, or you used to come back and say, why are all those churches empty? And I used to say to you, and you didn't like it, just hang on, you're about to find out. Well, now we have begun to find out, and the question is, are you going to hang on? Are we going to hang on? Because it is very, very obvious that uh, the notion of a persecuted church, and there are some hundred million Christians throughout the world today that are persecuted for their faith. As from Open Doors and the statistics they provide, I think they're pretty accurate. They may be on the low side. But for most of us, that has always been way out there and far away. But now we sense that it could be different. It's finally beginning to dawn on us that the broken, sinful world in which we live is not actually our home, that we're not supposed to be settling down here forever. We're not supposed to be treating it the way other people treat it, as if this was the be-all and end-all of everything. For our friends will say to us, won't they? You better enjoy yourself, because this is not a dress rehearsal. Well, in one sense, it is a dress rehearsal, because there is a day that yet awaits every one of us when we will stand before the God who created us. And the issues of time set within the framework of eternity demand careful consideration. And now we read, for example, Peter's declaration of the scattered believers of the first century with different kind of eyes and ears, writing to them as he does, as sojourners and exiles. We used to read that and think, I wonder what it would be like to be an exile. Suddenly, as a minority group within an increasingly secularized nation, the church is getting a flavor of it. 
Were we asleep when we read the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John? Did we assume they must have been written for another time and another place when Jesus spoke so clearly to those who were his followers? And in John chapter 15, after he has described himself as the vine and the branches, he says to his followers, "'If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you.'" Now, I know that some of us have come out of a background where that kind of um, notion was played out to a vast extreme, and often in a way that was entirely unhelpful. I have no truck with that at all. But I have found myself going back to these early chapters in Daniel because they don't provide for us a strategy of how to deal with living in an alien environment as much as they provide comfort and encouragement in realizing that the God who oversaw the events that transpired here described for us in the opening chapters of Daniel is the same God who is the God of his people, no longer now six centuries B.C., but in 20 A.D. And the overarching emphasis is simply this, that God is powerful, that God is sovereign, and that even in the face of circumstances that appear to be prevailing against us, we may trust him entirely. Uh, Sue and I were talking with a friend the other day. That's a euphemism for, I think, now two weeks ago. Uh, and in the course of conversation, he made a statement which we neither of us could recall and asked him to remind us of it, which he did in a note. And he sent a scribbled note, as requested. This was his statement. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Rather, it is obeying in spite of the consequences. It's not believing in spite of the evidence. That's what our cynical friends often say. Well, you just believe that even though there's no evidence for it. That's for another time. But in the context of Daniel chapter 1, for these young men, faith was obeying in spite of the consequences. And the question is, how are we going to handle an environment like this? Well, let's just work our way through in the time that we have, uh, noticing that the scene is set in verses 1 and 2. There is a historical marker at the beginning and at the end of the chapter reminding us that history is really history, that this took place at a moment in time, at a place, uh, essentially Iraq, and uh, at, at a point in history. And what we're told here is that the prevailing peace of Jerusalem and of the people of God had been shattered by the arrival of a foreign power. Uh, what the prophets had said would happen if the people did not pay attention and follow the law of God actually happened. And here we are told that Nebuchadnezzar and all of his Babylonian forces came in and besieged the city of Jerusalem. In doing so, uh, they took some of the vessels from the house of God, verse 2, and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, that little emphasis there of the personal pronoun is important, and the writer is letting us know that from all apparent perspectives, 
it would seem that the gods of the Babylonians were stronger than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After all, if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was strong enough to protect his people, uh, how come the Babylonians were able to come in and give them such a hiding? And the inevitable question would arise, well, then where is God in this? Where is God in these circumstances? Are we to assume, the people might have said, that all of our obedience to God has been for nothing, despite the fact that they'd been so disobedient too? And the story unfolds in such a way that we discover that God actually is more in control than they even understand. Notice what it says. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave him. The symbols of God's presence and God's power in these vessels have been snatched up and taken away. And it is God, if you like, who has done this. God has been responsible for the exile of his people. God has been responsible for the the defeat and the ultimate destruction of his own city. Quite remarkable. From a human perspective, they would have said, well, it's fairly straightforward. It's the uh, political and military overpowering of the people of God, the Israelites, by this foreign invading force. Yes, but what do we know? We know that nothing happens except through him and by his will. And so now this book is written, written, first of all, to the people who are still in exile and being reminded right at the beginning that God is actually in control of these things. You see, many of the people would have said to one another, you know, we didn't raise our children to, be, to have them carried away like this. And you'll notice where they were carried to, to the land of Shinar. Some of you who know your Bible well will recognize that it was in the land of Shinar, Genesis 11, that the Tower of Babel was constructed. And there in the land of Shinar, you had this great opposition to the building of the kingdom and power of God. And man said, what we'll do is we'll build a big kingdom for ourselves, and we'll raise it all the way up to the heavens, and we'll show God who's in charge of this operation. And now here you are, six centuries later, and the exact same thing is unfolding. This, incidentally, is a theme which runs throughout the history of the world. Augustine got it right, didn't he, in his book, The City of God and the City of Man. God is fashioning and forming his purposes from eternity to eternity. In the midst of that, man in his rebellion and in his defiance says, no, 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 we will not have you as a king. We'll show you how to do this. And as the people of God seek to live in obedience here, the Babylonians come in and give them a good thrashing. And they need to know that in that, through that, behind that, was a sovereign God himself. And the answer as to why it even happened is contained not only in the words of the prophets, but is contained in the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 later on. And I'll just turn you to it. I'm not going to read it all. But in Daniel 9, when Daniel prays and seeks the face of God, he says, verse 7, for example, or verse 6, well, you got to read the whole prayer. Sorry, but uh, we, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, verse 6, 
who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. We just flat out didn't listen. Verse 9, you're in charge of mercy and forgiveness. We are rebellious. Verse 10, we haven't obeyed your voice. The whole of Israel, verse 11, has transgressed your law and turned aside. They refuse to obey your voice. And the curse that was promised has fallen upon us. And these family members left behind because the exile was in three waves must surely have wondered what would become then of their sons. And here we have the record of what happens to these particular individuals. The king, verse 3, commands his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, of the royal family, the nobility, the youths without blemish, and so on. Uh, Just bring the cream of the crop in here, and what we'll do is we'll make sure that we fashion them and refashion them in such a way that they will be done with that old stuff about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we can get our hands on them, if we can educate them, if we can rename them, if we can relocate them, uh, just change their whole worldview, then we'll have them. It's a brilliant program of subtle coercion and sometimes not so subtle coercion. What they're seeking to do is to make sure that they change the way these fellows think about the world. And the way in which it is done is, first of all, by a geographical relocation. That's straightforward, isn't it? Well, it is straightforward, but it it causes at least us to pause on this. When they were taken away from all that represented familiarity to them, all that geographically, if you like, represented security to them. All that, if you like, kept them in the routine of their lives. Just to be taken out of that could in itself find them saying, well, I no longer have the place I used to go to. I no longer have the people I used to spend time with. I no longer have the reinforcement of my family members. I think I'll just give it up for a while. Or maybe I'll just give it up for good. It happens quite routinely to youngsters when they go off to university. Apparently, just a change of location is enough. No longer the reinforcement of their peer group. No longer the opportunity to gather as they once did with God's people. Just a change of location. Not enough to overwhelm these fellows. What about a change of education? They were going to be made competent by learning the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. In other words, we will retrain their minds. We'll retrain their minds. Every evil empire has always done this and does this. Communism did this. Marxism did this. Mao Zedong did this. It matters what you read. It matters how you think. So that's what they did. We'll change their names. They had lovely names, lovely Hebrew names that were God-honoring names. They said, we're going to get rid of those names. We'll give you new names that are God-honoring names. It's just a different God. This is God of the Babylonians or various gods of the Babylonians. And of course, what we would like to do is to give you a daily portion, verse 5, 
of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. He said, well, that was very nice. He's not sending them down to the local cafeteria, but he's actually providing from his own chef. Uh, this, how, how wonderfully nice of him to do that. You think? No, it was just another way. The last threads tying them to their roots were dietary, if you like. They had been unable to prevent themselves being relocated. They are unable to resist the fact that they are being re-educated. They have been powerless to resist a new name entrusted to them, thereby creating an identity crisis. But the one thing they can do and they're going to do is resist the temptation to change the plans of a diet. You say, well, what a strange choice. Well, no, not actually if you know the Old Testament. Because the distinguishing features of God's people were marked in part, in measure, by things that were apparently strange. And the Jewish people were always regarded as sort of weird. Well, why do you not do that? Why do you not go there? Why do you not drink that? Why will you not do this? And those features were not simply for them external manifestations of nothingness, but they were a practical effulgence of deeply held convictions about what it meant for them to belong to God. And there was a point for Daniel where he said, I can do this and I can absorb that, but I can't go any further on this. And so it was that he takes his stand, and as a result of doing so, having resolved, verse 8, he then makes a request to the chief of the eunuchs. And interestingly, the same God who gave his people into the bondage of the Babylonians is now the God, same verb here, who gave Daniel, verse 9, favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, that's no small thing. We don't get the impression here that Daniel and his friends were rabble-rousers, that they were freedom fighters, that they were a bunch of jolly nuisances. No, they were bright. They were good-looking. They were highly respected. They paid attention. They showed up on time. They shined their shoes. They were good soldiers. They were decent fellows. And yet there was a point, there was a core in them, there was a resolve in them, there was something at the very heart of them that couldn't be shaken. And it was that which caused them to take the stand that they took. Incidentally, that kind of resolution doesn't come just as a whim. It doesn't come overnight. It doesn't come just because all of a sudden something happened. Crisis reveals what's inside of you, what's inside of me. It doesn't create it as much as reveal it. And as soon as they're up against it here, now they said, no, we are not going to give up on this one. And God gave them favor. Now, what's the point? It's simply this, that in a foreign land where the people of God had already laid down their harps, remember? Remember, they're exiles. So these exiles, Psalm 137 Remember the old Rastafarian song? Um, 
by the rivers of Babylon. You know, we sat down. Oh, we wept. It was really good. When we remembered Zion. And so, so the people of God said, we might as well hang up the harps and give up the singing because how can we serve and sing to our God in a foreign land? Look at us. We're a miserable minority. We're crushed. The prevailing forces are such that they seem to be squeezing the life out of us. And you expect us to sit down here by the river and sing. Yes, that's the environment. And so Daniel is telling the story to the exiles, first of all. And he's saying, listen to what happened to us when we got there. God, who brought us there, went before us there and gave us favor with this character. Essentially, he liked these boys, but he was afraid for his life. And in that tension, he was living. It should make you think of Joseph. In fact, I'm sure it does. You remember how he was given favor with the cupbearer to the king. He couldn't control that. That was something God did. But the jailer, or the, 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 the eunuch here in this instance, is, uh, is predisposed to them, but he's not about to lose his head. And, this, and the strength of it is, is fairly obvious, isn't it? I, I love the sentence here in the ESV, verse 10, so you would endanger my head with the king. You know, you're a nice guy, and I know you've got a program and so on, but uh, no, it's not going to fly. And then verse 11, Daniel said, Oh, well, it can't be the will of God. If it was the will of God, then everything would have worked out nicely, so let's just give it up. No. Then Daniel said, Okay, if if I'm not going to get something out of the CEO, let's try the COO. And that's exactly what he does. Then he said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs has assigned over Daniel, Hey, The king's a bit worried about his head, but I got a deal. How about you give us 10 days? Give us a test for 10 days, and I'm going to show you that we'll actually be in better shape than the rest of the guys that go on the portions. Now, you will know that uh, the reason that uh, the, the concern was there was because they anticipated that if they did not take the meal plan that was part of the Babylonian program, then they would be seen to be, verse 10, in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. And when you're then seen to be in worse condition, then the king will be ticked, then I lose my head, so sorry, not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent, not at this juncture. So, then... Let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. That is pretty gutsy. That is very, very gutsy. There's no precedent for this. He's saying, we're going to trust God. You put us to the test, and we're going to put God to the test. We're going to see what God will do with us when we don't do with you what you want us to do. In other words, faith is for him and his friends obeying despite the consequences. And at this point, no one can know. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. 
And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and, and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Cue the Daniel diet, right? Now, is, is anyone reading this text or not reading the text? I didn't pay attention to the Daniel diet, and maybe I should, but the fact of the matter is, it, they, this program, they ended up fatter, not thinner. That was the whole point. So to... Uh, <laughs> there's no country in the world that you can make a butt better than the continental United States. The gullibility of people is beyond comprehension. It's amazing. It really is. Anyway, I say it with the greatest respect. Yeah. <laughs> So people are on the Daniel diet eating vegetables and stuff. Let me tell you something. You eat vegetables and water for three years, you ain't going to look as good as these guys, I guarantee it. Because the reason they look so good at the end of three years was not the diet. It was a miracle. God showed himself strong. By every other mechanism, they should have looked gaunt and withered and pathetic but they looked vibrant and terrific and they had a snap to their skin and they looked absolutely super. Why? Because God did it. And every day that passed in the three years when they woke up and looked in the mirror, it would be a daily reminder of the fact that God is no man's debtor and God is able to show himself strong. And every passing day as it, as it elapsed, the message was there again. And Daniel writes this down And the people of God are saying, you know, that is really quite amazing. But they should have known, shouldn't they? God had done something dramatic when he rescued Moses from the bulrushes. He'd done something incredible when he parted the Red Sea. He had brought them across the Jordan on dry land. He had banished the jolly forces of evil against them. They had seen Joshua stand forward, and and they had seen the walls of Jericho collapse. We've seen a lot of evidences of God's grace and goodness too, haven't we? And yet some of us have hung our harps. We've begun to complain, to bemoan everything. In verse 17, as for these four youths, as for these four youths, God gave them. It's the third God gave them. I think these God gave them are really the key to understanding this chapter. First of all, in verse 2, God gave uh, Jehoiakim into the hands of the Babylonians. Verse 9, God gave favor with the authorities. And verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had special understanding of visions and dreams, which, of course, is going to become apparent as we read on in the chapters In other words, God intervened on his behalf and gave him supernatural revelations, supernatural knowledge. And so the end of the time comes in verse 18. That's the end of three years. The king had commanded they should be brought in, and the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder if he was smug, you know? I wonder if... uh, I I just... I'd like to know. Because remember, he, he had 
looked on them with favor, but he was frightened he was going to lose his head. And now I think he probably came in leading them in. Here are my boys. We've got the group. Um, the program has worked exceptionally well. Um, the re-education has, I think, been very, very good. We've tested them in the literature of the Chaldeans, and they're exceptional. Um, they've really settled well in their new digs. Uh, not at first, but they're fine. And uh, they've responded well to their names. In the beginning, uh, they didn't always respond when I called them by their new name, but now they're perfectly happy with it. And as you can see, uh, I mean, in terms of their physical fitness, uh, they're, they're a standout. And they must all have got together and congratulated one another on how well everything was going. Boy, we, this is an internship program of amazing capacity. We'll be able to reproduce this again and again and again. But what they didn't know, and what man as man does not know, is that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was in control, was in control of their relocation, oversaw their re-education, granted them resolve and grace where they were prepared to take a stand. And in this and through this, he was working his purpose out. You know, we always say, don't we, that the Bible is a book about Jesus, and that every so often as we turn up to the pages of the Bible, we, we find ourselves almost thrust forward by the, by, by the wave underneath of us, pushing us forward to where we almost inevitably must end up, because Daniel takes us to Jesus very quickly, doesn't he? Daniel is taken away into the exiled situation of Babylon. The Lord Jesus leaves the glory of heaven and steps down into the ignominy of time and into our broken world. Daniel, in the face of great struggle and temptation, commits himself to the law of God. Jesus, in the face of temptation, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, says, I have come to do your will, O Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Daniel is exalted to a place of particular usefulness. And Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father on high, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So you see, the real emphasis of this and of the passages that follow is not this. And I've, I might even have preached these sermons in the past, God forgive me. But it's not um, about your diet. And it's not about, you know, Daniel didn't drink wine or big steaks, and you shouldn't either. Or Daniel was a really tough guy. Why can't you be a tough guy like Daniel? You know, Daniel, 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 Daniel. Daniel, if he came back, he'd go, why are you talking about me? This whole thing is about God. The reason I wrote it down was so that you would realize, living with the pushback of secularism, that the God who sovereignly controlled the 6th century Babylon B.C. is as much in control of 21st century Western culture A.D. Daniel 
was enabled to trust him. And you may trust him too. You need to know, says Daniel, that, uh, that uh, the, the Babylonian gods have, have not been successful. They haven't been successful. You know, I was watching yesterday on the, the golf coverage, or the, the coverage of nothing. Um, so <laughs> I tell you, the, the inventiveness of, uh, the inventiveness of uh, 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 the, the, the two guys sitting behind that desk, um, it's whatever their names are, it doesn't matter. But, it, I mean, it was, a, it was a tour de force on their part. It started around 7 o'clock in the morning when I turned it on. And they were still sitting behind the desk hours and hours later talking about nothing. They talked, they talked for the whole time about nothing. Showed the same thing. Look at that ball move. Whoa, look at that. Yeah, yeah let's look over here. Yeah, it moved over there. Oh, it's back over here. Look at that. Okay, well, let's go over to Phil. He'll show us where it's moving. Okay, it's moving over. I said, what a, what a job, you know. This is amazing. Why, how did I get there? Well, because I was thinking, I was singing about how, I mean, I had some ideas for them, didn't you? I mean, th- look, why did they not go out into the town of St. Andrews and move amongst the people and get some good footage? I mean, all the stuff they could have done because they can't get out of their own way. They think they're really significant. I mean, I say it with the greatest respect. They think that every time we tune in, we want to see them still sitting behind the desk. And so it moved over here. What's up with the media? By and large, the media is completely opposed to the message of Christianity. There's nothing new in that. Lord Reith, who founded the BBC, this is how I got here. I'll be back and finished in a second. <laughs> Lord Reith, who founded the BBC, was a tall man from the Highlands of Scotland. He would preside over the, uh, the directors and the producers of the BBC in routine meetings. In the late 60s, as secularism began to take its hold in the British Isles, some of the young producers and directors began to challenge the idea that the BBC would provide any kind of religious coverage at all. And their line of reasoning went like this. The world is changing, our culture is changing, and we want simply to be representative of that changing culture. People have lost any interest in God, in the Bible, in the church, and in everything else, and frankly, it's over, and we ought to just acknowledge that it's over and stop hymns of praise and stop the evening meditation and all that kind of stuff. And apparently, Lord Reith was not charmed by that. And he stood up at the end of the table, addressing the young man who had made this speech. And he said to him, young man, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC and at the grave of Fox, and at the grave of MSNBC, and at the grave of every proud monument raised to man's defiant, rebellious heart. And you and I, as living 
in the peculiarly privileged minority status of life at this point in history need to hear the words of Jesus ringing down through time as he gathers his disciples together and he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Daniel was looking forward to a day that he did not see. We are looking back to a day we have not seen, and together we look forward to a day to which Daniel draws us. In the meantime, with the exiles of 6th century Babylon, to us the exiles of 21st century Western culture, be encouraged, be comforted. God actually reigns. Father, thank you. Help us to navigate our way through these things. Help us, Lord, to know what it means to have all the tact and the courage and the grace and the insight of these men in such a way that devalues ourselves and our own preoccupations and makes much of you. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest upon and remain with all who believe today and forevermore. Amen. 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 So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>